Good evening. Welcome to Employment Law Today. I'm your host, Eric Sovereign. I'm an employment law and business law attorney. And I host this live weekly talk video show, this weekly video broadcast, every Tuesday night from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where I have guests who discuss some of the most interesting and novel and complex challenges that business owners and employers are facing in today's tough climate. And so in this spirit tonight, I would like to welcome uh, my colleague and friend, attorney Linda Kagan, founder and principal of the Kagan Law Group. And I'll give Linda more of an introduction in just a moment, but Linda, let me just say, welcome to the show. Oh, I think you're muted, Linda. Oh, I am. Oh. Thank you, uh, Eric. I, I really uh, am looking forward to uh, talking with you today um, and exploring uh, the questions you have. Sure thing, sure thing. Looking forward to it as well. And um, I'm going to just tell our audience what that topic is that Linda and I will be addressing. And I think it's a very valid one that really, really hits at some key issues that business owners need to consider as we go forward in this post-pandemic or this end phase of the pandemic type of world. And so our topic is called M&A in the time of COVID. What employers need to know. And then Linda and I were talking about this, the effect that it's quite clear that the pandemic has changed the scope of how we do business. And we all know that just from our experiences day to day. But what about the pandemic's impact on the world of mergers and acquisitions? Does the economic uncertainty affect how a company might position itself to be acquired or to be bought or sold? And how should companies structure their non-compete agreements and their employment contracts with their employees if they're contemplating being subject to M&A deals? What changes should a company consider for its existing employment agreements and their non-competes with their current employees, especially if a buyer will be taking over? So tonight, if you join me and Linda, I'm very happy to discuss this uh, is, is corporate law business law issue right here on Employment Law Today. And I want to give Linda a proper introduction uh, for our audience so you can know whom you're listening to and whom we're speaking with. And uh, again, my guest this evening is Linda Kagan, attorney Linda Kagan, founder and principal of the Kagan Law Group PC. Ms. Kagan and her firm handle business transactions and contracts, corporate structuring and business litigation, combining M&A and commercial litigation as well. Now, prior to founding her own law firm, Linda has had restructuring and business and corporate legal experience with two international firms, the both Lamb, Green and McRae, and Jones Day in New York City. She advises domestic and international clients in complex asset and stock sales, as well as acquisitions throughout the US, and increasingly now in cross-border and joint venture opportunities. And key areas of her strengths include strategic negotiation, litigation, pre-deal due diligence, business transactions, buy-sell agreements for a range of business types, whether single or complex multi-company structures, as well as intellectual property asset development with trademarks and licensing, licensing, excuse me, business restructuring and workouts, as well as improving business profitability through analysis of strategies, revenue development, and monetization of skills and or products, as well as Linda's ability to identify, leverage of business deals for her clients and to maximize the value, which reflects her genuine affinity to combine her skills as a business consultant and as a lawyer. As she also offers employment and tax lawyers available through her firm, I hear they're top notch. And um, as well as Linda Kagan is a member of the New York Bar since 1993. She is also, uh, in addition to being admitted, she is admitted in the, um, the federal courts as well. And she is a member of the American Arbitration Association, the Commercial Arbitration Panel. And she's also an MA Arbitration Panel member as well in New York and a FINRET, FINRA arbitrator in New York. In terms of educational background, Linda attended the University of California at Berkeley and received a Bachelor's of Science in an interdisciplinary degree combining economics and international development. She then attended Yeshiva University's Benjamin Cardoza School of Law, received her JD, and at that place she was a Cardoza Law Review member, impressive, and later clerk for the Honorable Judge Pierre N. Laval in the United States District Court in the Southern District of New York. So in other words, she's quite qualified to talk about this topic on our, on our agenda tonight. So again, Linda, really great to have you on the show. 
Thanks, Eric. I'm happy to be here. And um, I'm exhausted just hearing about what I've already done. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I know that feels like that. I hear your yeah. There's more to do. There's more to do. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's true. Well, it's it's like it's, it's interesting that that happens. I get that too sometimes I'm, as the guest that shows. Um, so we've we said a lot about you, Linda. But on the more your personal side, I thought if you could just tell the listeners a bit more about yourself, mainly what inspired you, Linda, to choose a career in law and to create your own law firm. Thanks, Eric. Um, well, you know, it's actually kind of, uh, I remember um, very distinctly when I first wanted to become a lawyer, and it was back when I was seven years old. And uh, the civil rights era was, you know, raging. Um, and, you know, the Vietnam War was on TV. And it just felt that, uh, to me, that being a, an attorney uh, would be a great way to make a difference. And so I was really inspired by um, the need to, you know, step up and, and take part in the world that we live in. Um, I didn't expect to turn out uh, that I, I'd wind up doing a lot of business-related law, um, but uh, the other sort of inspiration comes from my grandparents, who, all of whom came to the U.S. Um, through Ellis Island in the early 1900s, and you know, we're immigrants, very hardworking people, um, and really, you know, valued um, living in a democracy because mm -hmm. they didn't come from democracies. And I think that their entrepreneurial spirits and the example that they set for me really um, made business a very sort of comfortable place professionally. Um, mm. And it's also what's neat about business law, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, it's such a blend of, you know, real life business and the law is sort of, you know, uh, in the background, you know, we call upon it as we need to, but um, the guiding force is the business deal. Um, and of course, we need the law to nail down the clauses and make sure our clients are well protected and mm -hmm. we anticipate things um, that may or may not happen and include them. Uh, because obviously, you know, as you mentioned, I'm also a litigator, um, spend, mm -hmm. you know, sort of half my time in the M&A world and half my time in the business commercial law world. And uh, it's, it's so valuable to have sort of both um, parts of my brain working, uh, especially when I'm drafting a contract, um, because I am, am anticipating making sure that the contract is very clear, no ambiguous terms, uh, no, no loopholes or, or, or blind spots so that uh, my clients are obviously protected against any potential litigation down the road. And on the other side of it, um, you know, pursuing commercial litigation, whether it's breach of contract, fraud, um, you know, trademark infringement, whatever, you know, I know how to read a contract and I can see where those blind spots or little pockets of missing clauses um, exist. And, you know, obviously for my client's benefit, leverage uh, those weak points for the position that we need to take. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I relate a lot of what you're saying, Linda. It's interesting. First, I'm always inspired and curious about my guests. Like what, what was the motivating factor for what they want to do? And very often I find that like the seeds of what, what we want to do are maybe sown in childhood. I too wanted to be a lawyer, though it wasn't seven. It took me until the ripe old age, age of 10 to decide that. But I also I envisioned a different type of law. Uh, it's funny you mentioned civil rights. I can relate. But like to hear you know, focus on you, what you're saying, about having the Vietnam War, the social justice aspect, and then being inspired also by your grandparents' experience to sort of segue that into like being a lawyer, but in business and, and commercial litigation and transactions. Um, and, you know, I can see how like people often don't realize that when they think of corporate law or business or merger M&A, they think that's not justice-based. But as you and I know from our work and together and separately in employment and business law, like that, there are often wrongs to be righted, you know, and there's a sense of justice behind many uh, commercial litigation matters. Um, so I think that's jumped out at me. And another thing you mentioned, I like, just think about your kind of um, working in two different worlds, you know, you got transactional litigation. Um, I, I hear you that I think it makes you a better attorney in some ways, because 
many people that just focus on one or the other, if they do transactional or contracts work, when something goes wrong, they say, hmm, well, you know, better call so-and-so, this litigator. But if you know what comes down the pike about litigation, I know this for myself as well. When I'm drafting, I want to be very cautious that I could just envision that lawsuit coming in for like this clause, this breach of contract. So, but good to hear your, you know, your experience there. I, I, I really appreciate the background. Um, and to me, it's a nice segue into like another question here, which is about our topic tonight, right? So this, you know, the pandemic's impacted everything, I feel, personally, in my opinion, legally, business-wise. But I'm wondering, like, from your perspective, Linda, how has the pandemic impacted the world of M&A for companies? Like, for example, are we seeing more mergers and acquisitions in the last two years than we did in the two years prior? Well, it's, it's really hard to say, you know, overall, but I will tell you that my practice in the last two years, um, even though it was very busy in um, 2018, 2019, um, 2020 and 21 um, were just nonstop. Um, and, you know, uh, there was definitely a significant amount of commercial litigation in federal courts that we were doing. Um, but the M&A work continues. And I think I think it's it, it the it's not really the quantity um, that I can speak to. I'm sure mm -hmm. there are plenty of studies out there that talk about um, upticks here or there. Um, usually, they the articles are about when people don't expect there to be a lot of M and A work. In fact, there is, or vice versa. But what I did experience is sort of the quality and the perspective changes um, as business owners have to sort of rethink their businesses. They really need to understand. Um, how the pandemic just not only now affects their choices, but what the future uh, choices they need to make will be. Um, mm. So I think that uh, certainly there's more sort of vertical integration by companies mm. where they're purchasing, say, a distributor and they're a manufacturer. You know, they want to control the distribution channel. Um, you know, maybe they're going to start opening different types of um, retail or online outlets. Uh, maybe they'll buy a competitor who already has some of those assets and, you know, consumer flow and traffic and um, obviously revenue generating activities. So uh, I think that that is what I've seen uh, is really a significant change versus just wanting to um, improve their internal business functionality. Um, but in terms of M&A, um, you know, interested in taking advantage of different price opportunities, which I know we're going to talk about in a later question. Absolutely, we will. In fact, believe it or not, time flies when you're having fun. We are right about the first commercial break. I figure best to take it now, uh, a minute early, then to start a new question and have to stop. So, um, but yes, let's definitely talk about that, including ways that uh, companies might position themselves to be acquired bought or sold. So um, I'll just let our audience know if you're joining us late this evening, you're listening to and watching Employment Law Today here on Talk Radio NYC. I'm your host, Eric Sovereign, Employment Law and Business Law Attorney. My guest tonight is Linda Kagan, Attorney Linda Kagan, I should say, uh, founder of the Kagan Law Group. Stick around. We'll talk more about business considerations and legal considerations for company owners planning to be bought or merged. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you? 
you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Linda Kagan, attorney uh, focusing on the M&A, corporate law, business law, and litigation. And we are discussing this issue of M&A uh, in the time of COVID, what employers need to know. And it's interesting because I've done a lot of shows in the last six months or so or nine months on uh, companies looking to change internally, looking to fortify themselves during the pandemic in light of economic uncertainty. But I'm glad we're talking about this issue because a lot of companies are positioning themselves to be bought, acquired, sold. So I guess my question for you, Linda, along those lines, um, if you can speak to it, would be, does the economic uncertainty of COVID-19 affect or impact how a company might position itself to be acquired, bought, or sold? And if so, in what ways? Yeah, I I think that one of the significant, most significant issues is, um, well, it's always a significant issue, and that is valuation of a company. And certainly, uh, when people who own companies decide that they foresee selling the company or its assets, um, because obviously, you can do one or or both things. Um, It's either going to be an asset purchase agreement. Um, or it's going to be um, a, a share purchase agreement. And they're, they're sort of different beasts and they're different reasons why uh, a, an owner would sell the entire company uh, versus selling the assets or why someone would want to buy the assets and not the entire company. So I think with respect to the pandemic and, and the uncertainty and, and certainly, um, you know, obviously it's not just the pandemic. We have uh, uh, an ongoing um, you know, brutal attack against Ukraine, and that is throwing the world markets uh, and business as we know it uh, is changing moment by moment. Uh, So the valuation process that companies have to go through um, either prior to, um, you know, actively wanting to position themselves, as you mentioned, in the market for sale, they have to rethink both looking backwards and looking forward, how they determine a valuation um, that would make sense to a potential acquirer. Uh, Looking backwards, you know, as you mentioned, COVID, um, the last two years, while it's been very busy for lawyers like you and I, um, for a lot of people um, and a lot of businesses, they were working at a, a, you know, a very um, sort of low capacity, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe operating at 50% um, or 30%. If they were lucky, they were operating at, you know, 70, 80 or or higher, but there's quite a range there. Um, And so looking, you know, typically when uh, someone I'm representing someone who's buying and acquiring a company, we're looking at at least three years back in time to see what the revenue flow looked like, um, expenses, um, you know, what this sort of, you know, net income is and whether or not the company is positioned to grow further um, or did it hit a peak in, you know, two years ago or one year ago. And, and that would be sort of the normal review. But yeah. now it's different because if you look back and obviously the three-year look back, the last two years could be wildly different um, than the year, the third year before that, and obviously, you know, prior, prior years as well. 
So um, obviously this impacts not just established businesses that have been around for far more than three years, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of new businesses that start every day, every year. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as you know, I, I do a lot of corporate law setting up new companies, both right. for, um, you know, American business uh, people, but also I, I do an increasing amount of work over the last five years with international companies mm -hmm. and international investors setting up companies in the U.S., or acquiring them through the M&A process. Um, so the result is that you have to become much more nimble. Um, your expectations have to be more tempered in terms, you know, if you're the seller and, and anticipating, you know, a, a figure to be bought out. Um, and you also have to come up with ways in which you might consider um, instead of the traditional or, you know, what's, what often is the, is the case where someone is selling their company and yeah. maybe the owner stays on for a year or two uh, right. as a consultant um, and, you know, but still receives a bulk of the, uh, the revenue from, from the sale um, at the closing prior to that consultation period beginning. Well, mm -hmm. now that might change. Um, the owner might uh, more often take a, percentage of the sale price, um, you know, mm -hmm. at the closing, but need to sort of earn the balance of it by enabling the company to not just maintain its current status in terms of revenue and, and expenses and, and an income, mm -hmm. but also increase it. So mm -hmm. there may be, you know, the, the way that I would, you know, if I was structuring a purchase of a company for um, an acquirer at this point, mm -hmm. I would suggest that that would be, you know, a, an appropriate sort of payout um, process where mm -hmm. the owner has to stay on um, and has to continue to be, you know, a, an active part of the business in order to receive yeah. a balance of, of the payment that would normally um that the, the owner would receive at the closing of the deal. Um, mm. That's, you know, just to provide my client, if, again, the acquirer with some protection um, right. in terms of consistency, um, mm -hmm. someone who already knows the market, understands the functionality of the business, understands mm -hmm. the competitors, um, and can be more of a guiding force than they might otherwise be um, without, without the pandemic. And then, of course, we have the international instability um, and we have you know, significant inflation. Um, I think today there was it, the report was over eight percent. Um, and so that also creates challenges for uh, people who are selling their businesses. On the other hand, if, mm -hmm. you know, if, if it's the right time for you to sell your business, it's the right time for you to sell your business. Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, it's something that. You just need to be aware of and you need to be creative and you need mm -hmm. to find ways to create that um, multiple that, that you think is justifiable, um, yeah. you know, despite, despite the pandemic, despite the economic uncertainty, which right. in reality, you know, we always have economic uncertainty and there are always mm -hmm. things that are happening. Um, you know, there's, there's no generation that hasn't faced worldwide calamity of, of one sort or another. Um, and so mm -hmm. while, of course, in the moment, it feels like, you know, this is worse than anything else. It, it's, it's still terrible. And, uh, and obviously we all want things to calm down and for people yeah. to be safe in their homes, um, mm -hmm. wherever they live. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think the needle is going to continue to move. So, it's really about being creative um, mm -hmm. with solutions um, and advice, you know, that we provide to clients who are either interested in selling their business or clients who think this might be a good time to acquire a competitor or mm -hmm. another part of the vertical chain of whatever their business or um, whether it's a service business or a product-based business. Yeah. No, I think, it's, I think that's very good. Uh, those are very good points that I think it's exactly right about, you know, especially since we have, this valuation look back period is very skewed now. And you're right, every generation has its calamities, its wars, its uh, economic recessions and, and so forth. But with the pandemic, it's hard to get an accurate read on, you know, what the last two years indicative of how the company might go forward. And so, but having an owner stay on in a different capacity to guide the company through this extra 
this new layer uh, of business or this new level, I guess you can say, I guess, number one, it can inspire confidence in the buyer, knowing that in this uncertain world, they have the owner still on board, right, to kind mm-hmm. of lead the company the correct way, I mean, to use their skills, their goodwill, their knowledge of the field. But also, I think, just as you pointed out, it's hard for some companies, let's say, to um, kind of use a normal sort of usual standards that they would use for like evaluation process that they use if you and I were having this conversation, say, in 2018. Um, so I think, yeah, certainly international, uh, you know, instability, instability and the tragedies in Ukraine, and surely I think it will impact, continue to impact, you know, the, kind of the global scale of things and um, more companies would buy their competitors and such. Uh, it brings up interesting issues for me in employment law when I'm drafting non-compete agreements, like updating them for companies and saying, okay, well, look, if you have a clause that says non-compete, can be assigned to a possible successor assigned to a buying company, let's say, um, that employee might be then subject to a non-competition clause at the new company. But how much that new company want to enforce that um, if the new company is going remote and now their workers are working from another state where they live, that could change how the employment agreements must be structured. So I, I guess I raised that point, this point that there are a lot of different uh, I guess, factors to consider now. Um, maybe there weren't always in, as prevalent, you know, pre-pandemic, perhaps, fair to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the, uh, you know, every state has, well, many states have very different non-compete guidelines and and, yes. and legal cases that have determined that, um, you know, they want a very defined, you know, limited geographic area. Um, mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously, each state wants people to be able to continue to work. So there's a public policy component, um, which, you know, whenever you're drafting a non-compete clause, you know, whether it's in the context of an M&A deal um, or, you know, obviously uh, employment uh, contracts, you have to be cognizant of where you anticipate someone is going to work. And whether or not, if the contract say is drafted in New York and someone's working remotely in California, um, you know, do the non-compete limitations uh, set by California uh, courts apply? Um, You know, I haven't, I haven't read any cases on it yet, but I'm sure they're out there or or will be decisions will be coming soon, um, you know, to a theater near you. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, I think I think it's very challenging. I think um, you know non-competes are difficult to enforce. Um, I think they're um, really not business friendly, um, even though people who have businesses think that it's great to have them often. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know when you when you think about it, if everyone is is, uh, is including non-competes in executive uh, compensation and employment agreements, um, it's harder to hire people that you need. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, really can cut both ways um, because the employer who takes on someone who has a non-compete has to often pay the prior company um, some amount to release them from that that, that non-compete clause. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that it serves companies, um, as much as as they might think it it does to to have a non compete clause, I think it makes um, you know and and this also you know kind of segueing um, from non compete to uh, sweat equity agreements, yes. uh, which is also a very key component for um, a lot of uh, companies, um, especially startups um, or young companies um, who need to keep keep. Uh, employees um, and they so they provide sweat equity agreements, which would then allow you know over time for an employee to earn equity in the business as long as they continue to work in it. And so that's something also to really think about in the M and A context because you do want to take advantage of uh, maintaining the best employee base for a company that you're purchasing. And so vesting agreements um, are, you know, sort of the other side of the coin 
I think, from non-competes where you mm-hmm. want to honor um, and find a way to still provide those key employees with the intended benefits of a vesting agreement, even if it has invested. Um, so the way that we draft, obviously, the, the sweat equity agreements, um, which, you know, obviously allow companies that don't have a lot of cash um, mm-hmm. or don't want to use a lot of their cash for their employees, sort of blend providing them with a salary that's less than it should otherwise be with a vesting agreement so that they are earning equity as long as they stay for a number of years. And so, you know, the, the most effective way to um, ensure that the employee will get the benefit um, and the employer will get the benefit of that employee mm-hmm. being loyal and staying is to include in it a clause that triggers um, complete vesting should the company that issued the sweat equity agreement uh, be acquired by another company. Agreed. Yes. No. You're you're really like I'm singing to the parts of my heart that I really kind of in, do a lot of work on. I should say, or really, um, I, I'm uh, very much on board with what you're saying here, especially with the non-competes and sweat equity agreements. Now, the non-competes sort of like the carrot approach to business, as opposed to the I'm sorry, the stick approach. I meant to say, as opposed to the carrot, it's sort of like you know, don't leave, don't do this, or else we'll be penalized with this restrained, you know, from the non-compete. But I've seen a lot more, I've seen a trend, I should say, more often now, of course, not enforcing non-competes. And now, actually, it's funny you mentioned case law. I read two cases recently, um, I'm blanking on the names, one Second Circuit Court of Appeals, one is elsewhere, a state court, where they are looking at the, the clause might say, well, if you're terminated or you quit, doesn't matter, you still held to this non-compete for a year, what have you. Now courts are saying not so fast. I think if you're terminated and you lose, lose certain benefits that you would have gotten if you stayed um, and you just you know were fired without cause, like, then it's an undue hardship because now you're losing those benefits like, and health insurance and your salary. And then to restrict you even further where you can and can't work, it's just too much. So I'm seeing courts restrict those a lot, Linda. And to your point too, that if you're buying a company and you have these non-competes, well, other companies may have non-competes also. You might want to hire some great talent, and now you're getting a cease and desist letter from that great talent's former employer saying, right. we have a non-compete. So, and of course, the equity agreements, there's a lot to cover there, but we're a little over the commercial break. I just thought it was a great point to make. I wanted to let you get oh, that out. So, that. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Please, it's uh, totally fine. Um, so I'll just let our audience know, once again, you're tuned in to uh, Talk Radio NYC, and maybe you're watching us listening on uh, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, Stitch, um, Google Play, but yeah, this is Employment Law Today. I'm your host, weekly host, Eric Sauber, and my guest tonight is uh, attorney Linda Kagan. Stick around, we're going to talk more about M&A in the time of COVID. We'll be right back. Howdy, I'm Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7 Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
Welcome back, folks, to Employment Law Today. I'm your host, Greg Sauber. As noted, I'm an employment law business law attorney. I represent businesses, employers, uh, New York State industry agnostic. And my guest tonight is also a fellow attorney, uh, attorney Linda Kagan, the founder of the Kagan Law Group. Linda has, I think, much experience uh, and an impressive background in commercial litigation, business law, transactional work, M&A, corporate law, et cetera. So, Etc. is the most important part. And, and so we're here today talking, I think, with Linda um, about this MA in the time of COVID, what employers need to know. And I think we're covering some really good ground here tonight for people to consider. And we're just talking a little bit about, for example, about how companies can structure their non compete agreements, or should they have them or not? Um, or what about sweat equity agreements? So I wanted to ask you, Linda, Linda what are some more perhaps additional like, legal considerations and then business considerations like um, uh, for let's say a company that's yes, looking to uh looking to to buy other companies at the time of COVID. Yeah, those are you know obviously two really important parts of the equation uh for a buyer. I think that uh the legal considerations have to do with what we've been talking about in terms of employment contracts and any limitations, non-competes, um existence of sweat equity agreements and whether or not um, that impacts the deal um, in terms of, you know, where the cash goes and and whether or not the new, um, you know, the new owner is going to want to keep people on board and provide them with an incentive. Um, it's it's always interesting how companies think about the, uh, if it's a company buying another company, they think about it differently than say, um, someone who was in maybe the financial world and now wants to purchase a company, um, which happens quite a bit, just like, you know, lawyers leave the practice of law and become, you know, cafe owners or bakery owners or, um, you know, I don't know, astronauts. Um, yeah, the sky's the limit. <laughs> yeah, maybe not astronaut, because I think you have to, when you hit a certain age, it's probably not an option anymore. Yeah, get um, your issues and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, unless you become a billionaire, then you can fly with SpaceX or one of those companies. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, just to, you know, kind of walk through your listeners a little bit, I, I thought it'd be good to sort of go through some of the, the points of considerations um, Oh, yeah. And considerations that both um, either, a, you know, a buyer or a seller needs to be aware of. Um, and mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I have a, a fairly short list. I think it's about 10 or 12 points. The first thing that uh, whether you're, you know, interested in, in selling your business or interested in buying one, um, you have to the, the you have to look at a lot of very important information. And that all falls under the rubric of pre-deal due diligence. And that involves looking at all the corporate documents, all the financial documents, tax returns, um, tax obligations, uh, because a lot of companies do business in different states in the U.S. And so their tax obligations are not simply about payroll or their you know, immediate state. They may do business in Oklahoma or California. And so it's really understanding um, the reach of the company and its activities uh, and, and how, you know, the accumulated tax obligations, um, one, might impact the bottom line, but also you don't want to be held, um, you know, holding, you, want, you don't want to be in a position where you're holding the bag for mm -hmm. prior year's tax obligations. And right. this is, it seems like a very obvious point, but a lot of buyers don't think about that, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and part of it is when you don't know what you don't know, yes. that's you wind up paying for things that you shouldn't pay for, um, especially in the M&A world. So due diligence is such a critical part of the process, which is why, uh, you know, I always recommend that if you're interested in selling your business, you should start preparing for that a year or more in advance of your anticipated you know, closing date when you receive right. the big check or the wire to your account, um, because it really does take quite a while to position your company um, and prepare this, the due diligence. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, you want to review your operations. Um, you want to understand your current optimization for growth. And that requires having a very dynamic business plan 
And, you know, a lot of companies don't have business plans. They have right. a way of doing business. Um, but that's a de facto business plan. It's just not one that's readily understandable um, mm-hmm. you know, from the perspective of an acquirer. And so you want to have um, and put in place um, a business plan. And, you know, the reality is, and, you know, that's it's one of the consultancy parts of my practice that I do with companies is I create a business plan based on what their business does now. Mm-hmm. Um, in that process, we really uncover ways in which revenue may be leaking out the door um, mm-hmm. or just not being captured in the right way or expenses are flowing in and they're really not sort of focused on, on you know, where that's coming from. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a great way to get a handle on your business and you need that handle on your business if you're going to go out into the marketplace and present it to people who you think will want to pay you money for it. Um, It's the whole M&A process. It's not, you know, it's not nuclear science or, um, you know, um, anything that complicated, but it is very detail oriented. And I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's having the patience um, and the willingness to hire, you know, someone like me or my firm or, or you and, you know, Mm -hmm. what you obviously, um, do on the employment end of things and, and some mm-hmm. obviously business work as well is really taking the time to understand your own business. Um, yes. And, you know, that means reviewing your revenue stream, your client base to really determine how those um, create financial stability in your company. Because mm-hmm. when I'm looking at buying a company for a client, that's what I'm looking at. I want to really understand what the um, ongoing value will be. And that's obviously based on, you know, the revenue stream reflects the efforts and activities of the current owner. Um, Mm -hmm. The client base will determine whether or not those, that revenue stream is going to continue. Um, And how will it continue? What, what do you need to do to make sure it's going to continue? Um, Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, obviously qualitative questions um, or questions that require qualitative answers based sure. on the type of company, the market that you're in. Are you just in the U.S. market or are you in Portugal? Um, mm. or are you in Germany or are you in China? Um, you know, all those things really have. And, and where do your where do your resources come from? You know, do right. you, you know, are you dependent on on, you know, semiconductor chips made in Taiwan um, mm. or are you, um, you know, really uh, take, getting all of the sort of resources that you need to make your product um, in the U.S. or in Canada. Where and what's happening also in those places, right? In those countries, what's absolutely. impacting your supply chain, your, right? Absolutely. Interruption there, but yeah, just to point that out. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, right now, if you're, if you're building something and, you know, you need windows and they're, they're coming from, you know, um, you know, the edge of Western Eastern Europe, um, mm-hmm probably going to have a longer time period before you receive them um, because there's just, you know, too much instability and, and delays and um, you know, other more important things going on there um, than making windows. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, the other, some of the other points that I, I, you know, provide a, a, a detailed list for my clients is um, to determine whether the existing a- assets can actually expand the revenue base. Um, that is, you know, obviously an ongoing issue for every company, um, because they need to, you know, R and D, you know, research and development, whatever that means for their company. You know, if you're a restaurant, your R and D might be, you know, finding new menus or new chefs that can make Mm -hmm. a difference. Or, um, if you're, you know, creating a product, you know, are you, are you on, on the cutting edge? You know, are you, you know, ahead of your competition? Um, what is it going to take for you to keep up with your competition? And obviously, these are the same questions that an acquirer would have. You know, what have they done? Um, what is the, the business done to invest in itself? Um, what is it done to ensure that its revenue stream is not just in it going to continue as a flat line, but is going to increase? You know, yeah. is there an inflection point? that makes your company more valuable prospectively. And while you're not paid for the prospective value, you mm-hmm. might be, you might get a, some, a premium for 
the work that you've done to create that inflection point mm -hmm. um, because it is a value. Obviously, you have to negotiate back and forth what that what that number might be. Um, right. But I think that it's investing in yourself, um, and that could take the form of you know making sure you have a trademark filed. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, we do that more and more for our clients because having a trademark makes a difference, um, yeah. especially if you're selling in the international market. Um, mm -hmm. You want to, you know, having a U.S. trademark can be very powerful. Um, you're creating a brand. Oh, sorry, absolutely, I was going to say, and I want to hear more about this. I think it's a great list so far. Um, we're a little over our commercial race. I wanted to jump in there and take it to station's uh, uh, note there, but I will say that, Linda, this is really, like, uh, truly fantastic stuff. So when we come back, we're going to hear more of some of those business and legal points of consideration that Linda was just discussing for uh, positioning yourself for the merger and acquisition, buyer or seller. Uh, so stay tuned to Employment Law Today. Don't go away. We'll be right back and um, stick around. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. all pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. employment law today. I'm your host, Eric Sauber. Um, as my listeners know, I'm an employment law business law attorney. And I often have attorneys on my show, and I'm glad to have, again, as I mentioned, a friend and colleague, someone I've worked with and known for some time, uh, attorney Linda Kagan, founder and principal of the Kagan Law Group. And Linda, I must say, you know, like your, uh, your info and your, your tips and just the considerations that you were just giving before the commercial break on uh, M&A, it was is, is really great, and I um, echo a lot of what you're saying and related, you know, due diligence, um, just in detail oriented around existing assets. R and D is a key key feature. And I wondered if you wanted to take a little bit of time to uh, to finish that list. I didn't want to cut you off there with commercial, but and then I asked you one one last question. But did you have anything more you wanted to uh, to say in that uh, out of that list? Oh, I think you're on mute. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Uh, Sorry, they get you every time with that mute one. <laughs> gets me every time. Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of other things, and obviously, we I, doesn't make sense to go into any any potential details here. But um, you know, a tax analysis um, to structure the deal. Um, every M and A deal, um, you know, the acquirer in particular wants, um, as well as the seller, wants to structure the uh, the value of the different assets um in order to capture um you know uh taxation um sort of minimization uh you know from different perspectives and you know part of that is valuing goodwill um valuing trademarks valuing ip um licenses um you know we do a lot of work um creating licenses for for clients um in the uh 
in the business world. Um, I think the financial analysis is uh, really the biggest part of it. Um, I know we've talked about a number of the, the factors that are, are part of financial analysis. Um, and, you know, again, it's, uh, I think the valuation models are, are, you know, they're as many as you can, you know, think up. Um, and I think that, you know, the um, different components, one of the classes um, I had at Berkeley was econometrics. Um, and it was, it was kind of ahead of its time back then. Um, uh, and it, it, it's really interesting how it really plays into the M&A um, analysis, because you really want to think about all of the different elements um, that make up the metrics for a deal. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, we've touched on employment, trademark, intellectual mm -hmm. property, employees, key employees, yep. all these things are, are part of it. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it's just uh, an, an important area to, to learn more about and to share with people the experiences that, you know, I've had as a lawyer for unbelievably 29 years now and counting. Mm -hmm. so, I know that the years go fast. It's amazing. And I think about that too. When I, when I say it's been 23 years, how is it possible? But like, no, I hear you about that. And you know, it's a very big umbrella, right? The, the considerations for m and I mean, from the employment side, you touched on a few things there. I, I also like to look at, like, say, are there any currently existing employment discrimination cases, charges, or, or Department of Labor like filings or investigations that are outstanding for a company? If they're looking to sell themselves they really be able to resolve those if you're looking to buy a company make sure you have different situations resolved and settlement agreements in place um but that's also an issue we're seeing a lot of that with the rise of the implicit bias and the rise in discrimination cases based on disability during covid a lot of companies now like when they're positioning themselves to be sold and they have to reveal that or disclose that it comes out in due diligence there's a lot of explaining to do so it's important to get with an employment lawyer as well on these mm -hmm. facts, um, which I'm Absolutely. happy to leave people. Yeah, so we've got a few minutes left. I want to um, I want to give it, turn it over to you in, the, to, in two ways. One, I'd like to ask you a fun question, which is how do you distinguish yourself? Um, aside from what you've shown, you're obviously very well-versed in all this knowledgeable and analytical. How do you distinguish the Kagan Law Group from other you know, M&A corporate transaction firms? Well, um, you know, after being in the uh, the land and the world of, of big firms uh, when I first left law school, um, uh, and actually I had really great experiences at both firms um, mm -hmm. and learned quite a bit, uh, really fascinating, interesting people. Um, I think what distinguishes the practice that I created back in 2004, um, and so now had it for 18 years, um, is the ability to be um, a little more um, insightful into uh, the, the projects and the cases that we take on uh, because we're, you know, the, the law group is created specifically as a boutique firm to focus on the needs of business owners um, and business investors. And so um, the result is that we focus on commercial litigation related to business transactions um, or contracts obviously that businesses enter into and having the constant focus on the needs of businesses, whether we're filing a trademark, drafting a new agreement, doing an M&A deal, either, you know, suing another party or defending against a lawsuit from another party. Um, we also focus quite a bit uh, more and more on alternate dispute resolution. So as you mentioned, I'm an arbitrator for the American Arbitration Association. Um, I can also work on private arbitrations and I'm doing more and more mediation, um, which is if the list, list, your listeners don't know, arbitration um, is there's a Federal Arbitration Act. And so that's a very sort of formalistic way of uh, negotiating a, a dispute, um, a little less. It's more private than being in court um, because arbitration is typically done privately. Decisions are private. Um, and so a lot of companies um, and employers like that approach. Mediation is a completely, um, you know, different uh, species uh, in itself in that it provides more often than not for non-binding um, negotiating between parties um, in, and it's less structured. There's no federal mediation act. Um, mediation is, as well as arbitration is often 
um, in the clauses in your contract, your business contracts, that you might not have remembered if you even read them to begin with when you signed them. Um, and they actually require you to make best efforts to first mediate a dispute, um, mm -hmm. which means, you know, working with your lawyer and the other side and having meetings and trying to work out, um, you know, the, what's, what's actually going on. Um, and then some of, some of contracts also have an arbitration clause, which requires mm -hmm. that you enter into formal arbitration. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we really try to help in, in, in all points. And I think that having this broad experience um, really enables us to be effective um, mediators, arbitrators, and litigators. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's great that you can share that with us. We've got less than a minute left. What I want to do is I want to make sure I share Linda's contact information uh, two ways. Like one on the screen, because we, for those who are watching, you can see right there the Kagan Law Group uh, offices in New York City. We've got the website, www.thekaganlawgroup.com. We've got Linda's LinkedIn up there, phone number 212-877-0296. And of course, L Kagan, L-K-A-G-A-N, at thekaganlawgroup.com. Uh, there it is for folks to see. Linda, in the next 20 seconds before they cut me out, I want to say, or 30 seconds, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, I want to thank you for appearing, for all your knowledge and insights. And I want to say that if you listening tonight or watching tonight love the show, you like what you see, tell your colleagues, tell your clients, tell your friends to tune in 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to Talk Radio NYC. You can also catch us on iTunes, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitch, and I'm blanking on the other one. So have a wonderful night. Thanks again, Linda, for joining us. And tune in Tuesdays. I'll see my audience next week. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. informed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. 
This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 